Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we took a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Naomi Soto, your co-host and health policy professional based in California. And I'm Brendan Steidel, your other co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning talk shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, December 19th, 2021. And there's a lot of topics that were covered this Sunday. Yeah, I looked at three shows today. I looked at State of the Union, which was hosted by Jake Tapper. I looked at Meet the Press, which was hosted by Chuck Todd. It was done remotely. Apparently, there is a positive case in his household. Oh, wow. And so he is isolating for the time being. And then lastly, I looked at Fox News Sunday, which... If you remember the big news of last week, Chris Wallace is no longer the host of. He's no longer with Fox News. And so today the sub was Brett Baer. I took a look at Face the Nation, hosted by Margaret Brennan. And I looked at This Week, hosted by John Carl. So the big news today was pretty much Omicron is the next variant affecting all of our lives. Uh, And so there was a lot of news about how that's impacting the East Coast and decisions being made all over the country and world. And then the other thing that kind of exploded today was some news on Fox News Sunday when Brett Baer interviewed Senator Joe Manchin. He said he's pretty much done with, he said he was a no on the Build Back Better proposal. Yeah, that was huge, huge news this morning. So I take it you'll be talking about those two items today, Naomi? That is correct. Are you talking about anything different? Yes. I'm going to talk about, in particular, a special interview that Margaret Brennan did on Face the Nation about the opioid crisis with the DEA director. But first, before all of that, let's talk about quality questionable, Naomi. What stood out to you today? So mine is maybe a quality question. It could be more scathing. And so I think it It didn't quite reach its potential, but I wanted to look at or share this question that I heard on State of the Union when Jake Tapper interviewed Dr. Fauci, in which he brings up the state of testing. It's not great in this country. The Biden administration does seem to be falling short when it comes to testing. Uh, As these cases are spiking, many Americans are stuck in long lines. Many pharmacies are sold out of the rapid at-home tests, not to mention, of course, they're expensive. The White House has even mocked the idea of sending tests to every American. Is the state of testing in the United States acceptable to you? Well, we got to do better. I mean, we are doing better. If you look now compared to where we were a year ago, it's, it's extraordinarily much different in the positive sense. We now have multiple, multiple at-home tests available when we virtually had none a year ago, but we do need to do better. The government now, the federal government, has been investing now several billion dollars to make anywhere from 200 million to 500 million tests available per month. Many of them free. They're going to be at 10,000 centers that are going to be giving out free tests. So we're going to be going in the right direction. We do. And I've said that myself many times, Jake that we really need to flood the system with testing. We need to have tests available for anyone who wants them, particularly 
when we're in a situation right now where people are going to be gathering, even though they are vaccinated and boosted, they may want to go that extra step, that extra mile to know that when we have people coming into the home where they're going someplace, that you could know in 15 minutes whether or not you're positive. If only they had known that there was going to be lots of gathering happening at the end of the year. Who could have predicted that people would have gotten together? Shock and awe, Brendan. No one could have seen this coming. This is like as probing, as scathing of a question I found on this. And it is still too weak. To say that it's expensive like and just say that is like just unacceptable tests are literally 1250 each you can only find them in almost you can only find them in packs of two which cost 25 dollars and so all this advice that we hear from public health officials saying you know take all the mitigate like mitigations that you can get vaccinated get boosted if you're gonna gather Try to rapid test before you gather. Well, you know what? That's a lot of money for a lot of people if they're supposed to do that before every gathering. That's a lot of money for parents who want to make sure that their children, before they go to school a couple times a week, two to three times a week, before they play sports, whatever, are able to confirm that they're not positive. Sports leagues are testing all the freaking time. Certain federal agencies are able to test all the time, but to make those tests readily accessible, which are available in Europe, (laughs) free, if not very cheaply, is, is not possible in this country. And it is truly, truly pathetic. And there should be way more criticism to the federal government, to Dr. Fauci and all of his peers, that we're still in a state of like, well, it was better than a year ago. No shit, it was really bad last year. There was nothing available. That is not the like benchmark we should be working against. And over a year ago, Tapper was pressing the representative from the White House, the Trump White House saying, why do you all get tested every day? Why can't exactly. my kids get tested every day? Why can't I get tested every day? And they were like, well, you know, it's not the, you know, not every place is the White House. Not every person is the president, you know, so it's not that important. That was, we're still it was a joke place. then. It's a joke now. Yeah. I did want to highlight one counterpoint that I found remotely inspirational <laughs> or aspirational, I guess I should say. And that was, I didn't know the state of Colorado was handing out free tests to their residents. In an interview on Meet the Press, Chuck Todd notes this kind of success story with Governor Jared Polis. How about your testing capacity all over the East Coast, particularly in the Northeast over the last 48 hours? There's been a run on the at-home tests. Can't find enough of them. They're, by the way, they're a little pricey considering if this is something that essential, should they be priced as high as they are? And we've seen fewer public places to get tested. Uh, Do you need more resources on that? What's the situation in Colorado? We've uh, made free at-home testing available to every Coloradan for months now. So we've sent out over 1.2 million, just right to your doorstep. You get the free test, the same kind that in other states people have to buy. It's a popular program. Uh, We're certainly planning on continuing it uh, for the time being. What? Did not know this was happening in Colorado. Really want to give praise to the state of Colorado for doing this. And we should be highlighting this as like a success story and that more states can do this. So it embarrasses the Biden administration that they're not making it more available. And New York states or New York City's going to do this. It's going to be well. starting right yes. now. Yeah. And I just also wanted to note one thing that I saw missing or weak. 
I don't probably have the time to include the clip, but Jake Tapper was the only one of the three shows that I saw today that mentioned the delay in the kids booster. So this week, Pfizer mentioned or, or Pfizer reported that they didn't see enough of an, a boost for two to five year olds. And so they have to do a whole nother kind of clinical trial to try to see around that third dose. And so from six months up to five years old are still not eligible for vaccine. And there's a lot of people who are pretty bummed, pretty devastated by these news. Parents of young children. To to be clear, those two to five can't get a vaccine at all. Correct. You were saying boost as if they were waiting on the booster. No, like the immune response was not enough for what they were hoping to accomplish. Yes. Correct. So under five are completely ineligible for a vaccine. And it's just like another example of people in this country who don't care about people who are like vulnerable in this pandemic and are like completely, it's just so disappointing that that part of the, the scientific delay, which is really affects so many families and households it's just like not even worth a blip on some of the shows i will say that face the nation it was way more than a blip there was an extended back and forth with dr gottlieb on this issue why there was a delay how the study was structured what the results are and when we should expect to see that authorized so i i would do want to call out face the nation for doing a good job there well all the other men can step up, their, step up their game, I guess. Yeah. Brendan, what's your quality or questionable? Well, it's in this same category, which is about the pandemic and tough or important questions that actually showed up. In particular, this week, John Carl was speaking with, yes, Dr. Anthony Fauci, and he asked him about this COVID pill that everyone has kind of heard about floating around there, but it's like, when is this going to be available? Is this like a real game changer? Let's nail this down. And luckily, John Carl asked a few questions on this topic. There was some good news. There was this clinical trial of an antiviral pill uh, by Pfizer. Pfizer says that it uh, was 90% effective at preventing hospitalizations and deaths. Uh, How big a breakthrough? Is that potentially the game changer that, that we've been waiting for? John, that's going to be really important because if you look at the data, and this is the Paxlovid from Pfizer, if you look at that data, the data are really quite impressive. If you get an antiviral that up to 90% will prevent you from going from clinically recognizable infection to blocking your getting to the hospital or dying in a 90% chance if you get treated within the first three days of the onset of symptoms. That is big deal. I mean, that, that is really, really good. So we're looking forward to getting that uh, particular product mass produced to the point it will be va- available to people who are really anywhere who need it. And there are going to be a lot of people of high risk who are going to benefit greatly from having a pill that would dramatically diminish the likelihood they're going to wind up in the hospital. How, how r- rough, I mean, how soon realistically do you think something like that would be widely available? You know, it's going to be months if you look. It's a very complicated synthetic process to make the drug. It is not something that's simple. So the company's revving up and getting more and more, but we're not going to see widely available for at least a few months. 
So this is really important. It's important for people to know that this is out there, so there's some hope on the horizon, but it's also important for people to know that this is not available yet. It's not like you can go to the store and get this. It's not like this is a you know free pass to just say, oh, I don't ever need a vaccine because I can just take the pill. Well, the pill's not out yet. It's not available. It's not making any impact on this pandemic right now, and it's not going to for months and months. So it's important to to get that information out there. What I'd like to see more is to press like, why isn't this being accelerated in every possible way in the same way that we had like a warp speed, uh, an operation warp speed to get these vaccines as soon as possible. What is the federal government doing and pushing Pfizer to do to make this available ASAP? because this is really, really important. We know that there are vaccine holdouts. There are over 50 million Americans that are not vaccinated right now and could be vaccinated. These are people who are eligible. We're not talking about people under the age of five. We're talking about people who could get the vaccine and have refused to do so. Those are people who matter, and those are people for whom this pill could be a way to protect them and protect our society from COVID-19. So we need to get it done faster. So we need to ask questions about it. Why isn't it being done faster? But at least it was brought up and it should be mentioned more and more. But Naomi, why don't we get to your topic, which I believe is about politics, the big news today about Senator Manchin. Yeah, so since I looked at Fox News Sunday, I had the big interview that everyone was talking about that Twitter couldn't shut up about, and that's that Joe Manchin went on Fox News Sunday talking to Brett Baer and pretty much said, like, nah, thanks. This isn't for me. And a lot of people were pretty upset. So let's start with Joe Manchin first and kind of how he explains why he's a no. And you know my concerns I had, and I still have these concerns and where I'm at right now, the inflation that I was concerned about, it's not transitory, it's real, it's harming every West Virginian. It's making it almost difficult for them to continue to go to their jobs, the cost of gasoline, the cost of groceries, the cost of utility bills, all of these things are hitting in every aspect of their life. And, and, you, and you start looking and then, then you have the uh, debt that we're carrying at $29 trillion. You have also the geopolitical unrest that we have, you have the COVID the COVID uh, variant, uh, and that is wreaking havoc again. People are concerned. I've been with my family. I know everyone's concerned. So when you have these things coming at you the way they are right now, uh, I've always said this, Brett, if I can't go home and explain it to the people of West Virginia, I can't vote for it. And I cannot vote to continue with this piece of legislation. I just can't. I've tried everything humanly possible. I can't get there. You're done. This is, this is a no. This is a no on this legislation. I have tried everything I know to do. So here Manchin is underscoring his ongoing concerns, specifically around inflation and the cost of this bill. He then kind of moves on and also talks about that he was really displeased with kind of some of the funding mechanisms that Democrats were considering or were trying to include in the bill to bring down the cost of the bill, but he felt like it wasn't truly accurate of the 
full cost in his estimation. The president put out a statement Friday saying that you still supported $1.7 trillion. He said you needed more time to finalize negotiations. And reporters asked you about that, and you said the president put out that statement. It's his statement, not mine. So now what you're yeah. saying today makes a lot more sense of why you said that. You're a no. Well, well, Brett, here's the thing. I, I've tried. I mean, I really did. And the president was trying as hard as he could. He has an awful lot, a lot of arms in the fire right now. A lot of, a lot, I said more on his plate than he needs for this to continue when I'm having the difficulties I'm having. And basically, the challenges we have from different parts of our party, basically pushing in different ways. So everyone still has the aspirational things they want to do. They said, well, can we still make this fit? We'll just cut it down to two years versus 10 years. We'll cut this one down to four years versus 10 years or one year versus 10 years. That's not um, that's not being genuine right. as far as I'm concerned with my constituents in West Virginia. Actually, this is really interesting to hear. I, you know, obviously, I didn't cover this, so I haven't actually heard from Manchin himself and heard this interview as it played out. I'm hearing it now here for the first time. And I know that since then, the White House put out a statement. It was clear the White House wasn't aware this was really going to happen because it took them time to put their statement together. But part of it was to say, yes, that there was an agreement that seemed to be actually written down uh, and signed by Manchin that he was committing to supporting something of $1.7 trillion, And I wasn't aware that Bear confronted Manchin with that in the interview itself. So it's interesting to hear Manchin respond to that. I mean, between both of these clips, though, at no point is, and I, I don't, didn't really include the follow-up questions, but at no point then does Brett Bear ask Manchin, like, then what does it look like? Then what would it have looked like that they didn't want to agree to? Right. Or, you know, what was your bottom line about how 1.5 should be funded? Like, right. they cut this and this and this, and that wasn't enough. Yes. Like, there's no specifics as to what he was willing to kind of, yeah, you know, cross the line for and maybe it's out of deference to the president i don't know but it's just like don't give this guy all this clout without understanding the specifics of what his party would not agree to right right exactly it's like what was your alternative joe like joe Manchin, like if you yourself have been in all these negotiations what is your position? Right, because all, like, all you talk about are your concerns, and you don't say what your freaking solution yeah, is. Yeah, what are you for? I feel like I'm uh, we're in like, Hamilton. I know. We're like literally Hamilton our way through this <laughs> Joe Manchin interview. It's, but it's frustrating. Like, you don't want the child care tax credit. That was made abundantly clear in the last few weeks. You don't want to do climate change. You don't want to do, you know, Medicare expansion. Like, you just want new bridges? Is that it? Like, that that's what you want. Okay. You that, never wanted this to begin with. Right. And acting like he possibly did maybe is everyone's fool's errand. But reporters should be demanding that from him because he right. made it sound like he was for something. And he made it sound as if he had, like, a big declaration. Right. His declaration is that he was, like, tired of negotiating, not yeah. what his party wouldn't agree to negotiate with him on. Mm-hmm. But there was a ton of blowback after this interview, you know, was on and, and, and all the other shows were responding. Senator Bernie Sanders, one of the key senators who have been negotiating this, was on State of the Union and was unsurprisingly very upset. I was a little surprised, though, that he kind of put his ire at like the general like special interest rather than 
directing it more closely to Joe Manchin's what some would say is dishonest strategy and negotiating. You know, what's going on now, Jake, in Washington is the big money interests are pouring hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars to make sure that we continue to pay the highest prices in the world for prescription drugs that the rich do not stop paying their fair share of taxes. And I would have hoped that we could have had at least 50 Democrats on board who have the guts to stand up for working families and take on the lobbyists and the powerful special interests. We have no Republican support. Not one Republican in the United States Senate or the House, for that matter, is prepared to stand up to the drug companies or the insurance companies or the wealthy. I would hope we would have had 50 Democrats. Mm -hmm. But if that is the case, then I hope that we will bring a strong bill to the floor of the Senate as soon as we can and let Mr. Manchin explain to the people of West Virginia why he doesn't have the guts to stand up to powerful special interests. Oh, so you want to vote on it no matter what, even, even if... Absolutely. Absolutely. The American people have got to understand what is at stake. For decades now, what Congress has been doing, giving tax breaks to the rich, not standing up to the drug companies so that we end up paying the highest prices in the world for prescription drugs, ignoring climate change. The president of the United States and mm-hmm. almost every Democrat is trying finally to address these issues. Yeah, you can hear the anger in his voice there. Yeah, I mean, it just seems like, I don't know, maybe this is like my own personality. (laughs) perk. But like, if Joe Manchin wants to be the face of the no, then put Joe Joe Manchin's face on it. Like, calling this like the ploy of special interests and Joe Manchin won't stand up to them, it makes the boogeyman the special interest as opposed to you have like a villain in your house (laughs) who's not helping you. Like... Put the attention there. Like, well, I think he said that. He says, like, Manchin has to vote no. Make him vote no. I know. But he's. I wouldn't have put it on the special interest at all today. Mm, yeah. Like, the thing is, is, like, if a bully punched you in the face, do you then be like, well, all his crappy friends, like, made him do it? And it's like, no. Right. It's the damn bully. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, that's kind of what it comes off to. Isn't I it? see what you're saying. But I think what Bernie's trying to do is paint, he's always trying to paint the larger picture, right, which fits within his narrative of large special interests and corporations are the ones that are behind all of this. And that, you know, Republicans and Manchin and others are just, they're pieces on the board, essentially. And we are just about ready to slay the dragon of social interests, but we just couldn't quite get there. Yeah, perhaps. I mean, I don't really buy that, but maybe that's what he's going for. Maybe people believe that. Doesn't work with me, so if anybody calls me, don't try that. On another part of this interview, though, and I saw this in different shows, proposing like, well, what if the Democrats do this in like piecemeal in the next year to have like something done by the midterms or whatever? Like, I don't know what fantasy land they're thinking that actually happens when no Republicans have expressed support for any piece of the Build Back Better program. But sure enough, Jake Tapper, you know, like brings up this possibility to Sanders and he makes it clear, like, how, where, when? That's dumb. Is there a strategy forward? Is there a way to pass parts of this legislation piecemeal, uh, assuming that you do bring it forward for a vote and assuming Joe Manchin is uh, is one of 51 who vote against it? Well, the problem that we have is that obviously you need 60 votes. We have no support from Republicans 
to pass uh, standing legislation. So it has to be done through reconciliation. So I haven't thought about that yet. yet. Uh, but all I do know uh, is that the dividing line in this country is going to be very clear. On one side of the, one side of the equation, you're going to have Republicans, I suspect Mr. Manchin, who say, yeah, it's okay. We don't have to deal with the fact that billionaires, in some cases, don't pay a nickel in federal taxes. We don't have to deal with climate change. We don't have to deal with childhood poverty. We don't have to deal with the high cost of prescription drugs. And on the other side will be those who say, yeah, we do. And that tells me that we need a lot more than 50 Democrats in the United States. I'm a little confused by Sanders' answer here. He's pretty much saying, like, anything we do has to be done through reconciliation because there's no way we're going to be able to reach 60 Right, votes. right. That's right. And I, I think the point is, and we have talked about this on Polylog, that, like, reconciliation is something that essentially you can't do a lot of times. So you can't break it into small pieces. Right. You need it to be big. That's what reconciliation demands. And reconciliation is the way to get around the filibuster, which these Democrats in full force of 50 are not willing to break. Manchin and Cinema are not yes, willing to break. exactly. To be clear. Exactly. So essentially, <laughs> the reality is, Manchin is like, well, if only we could tackle these in small pieces, maybe I'd vote for it. But the only way to do that is to get rid of the filibuster, which I'm not willing to do. So it's like, well, then you can't do it in small pieces. Then you can't do shit. Oh, well, I guess we can't do anything then. It's like, oh, how convenient. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Obviously, we're talking about the in the weeds, nitty gritty of how things get passed, don't get passed. Was there enough talk about the impact? Who's impacted by this of lack of not. legislation oh my being gosh. passed? No, it doesn't talk about. I mean, that's not true. In some of the shows, they mention that the child care tax credit is going. Essentially, we just had the federal government just paid its last payment. It expired December 2021. There will be no more child care tax credits paid out in the new year although the way it was structured people will get half of it when they file for their tax returns right right? the the monthly payments are done is what i'm saying right so there was that comment around how effective it was in bringing families out of poverty and that well we don't really care about them so maybe they go back to you know back into poverty we don't know we don't care but there that was like the only thing that was mentioned on one or two shows it didn't mention any of the other proposal like paid family leave elder care and when you say we don't know we don't care what what do you who's the we in that the media institutions who covered this story today that i looked at did not explain how the lack of this bill would impact their lives so the lives of of the people who would have benefited from right, it. Right, right. So that means like poor kids, old people on Medicare, old people who have, who wanted dental and vision. Right, it was All treated, the energy jobs, yeah. <laughs> like all of those things that aren't happening. Yes. There was zero explanation as to how that would then like stall those really necessary causes and it, it was purely about, like, essentially price tag. And why couldn't the, the Biden administration or in that negotiation reach Manchin's 
demanding 1.5 trillion right i think this is a common frustration we've talked about on the sunday shows is that they cover any piece of legislation as like oh this is this is biden's signature piece of legislation right now so let's cover it as like what biden and the democrats want to do just as we covered it you know the the tax bill as what the republicans and trump wanted to do and you could just copy paste all the coverage and just find and replace the words tax bill with the words BBB, you know, build back better. And it's essentially the same exact coverage. But we're not talking about the people who are impacted, what the bill actually does. It's just in the weeds a lot about like where the bill is on the field, right? Well, it's so funny you say that because Philip Rucker from the Washington Post was on the panel on Meet the Press and he like brings up Biden's falling poll numbers as like, no, duh, this was going to be really hard to pass when Biden's like approval numbers are slipping. Like he, he doesn't have like the full support of the American people right now and it's falling. And like, OK, but like the people are actually the majority of Americans are supportive for the individual pieces of the Build Back Better program. Like you can actually talk about the programs and people and make the criticism that Biden or Democrats have not made the case about what's in the bill so that people would be excited for it. But like to make it about Biden to then be the reason why it fails is like not talking about what people actually want in terms of how this the social spending could have impacted their lives. Yeah, it's it sounds like his analysis. Now, I didn't hear the, the clip that you're talking about, but it sounds like his analysis is like, oh, this is Biden's bill. Biden's unpopular. So the bill is failing rather than this is a bill that represents what the people want. And Biden is failing the people. Right. Exactly. That's that's how I saw like the missing conversation. Right. There actually was a comment and I didn't pull the clip because I wasn't covering this topic, but there was actually a really good, robust discussion of this on the panel of this week that I found really useful. And one of the panelists noted that like Biden and the Democrats have spent months promising Americans all the things that are in this bill. And now they're not delivering on any of them. Yeah. And like that failed promise is pretty significant. Ayanna Presley was on State of the Union and, and it came up in a couple of ways. The first was specifically around House progressives who really wanted to couple the two infrastructure bills, if you remember, because they were worried about this happening. And Jake Tapper asked, like, do you feel like Biden let you down? It was an interesting response. Ayanna Presley is a Democratic congresswoman from the state of Massachusetts. Do you think President Biden, in telling progressives, and I realize you were one of the six who were skeptical, not of Biden, but of Manchin, But do you think President Biden broke his promise? He said, I give you my word as a Biden, we're going to get all 50 Democrats on board. This is about Joe Manchin obstructing the president's agenda, obstructing the people's agenda, you know, uh, torpedoing our opportunity to advance unprecedented advancements to address the hurt that this pandemic induced recession has caused and to get this pandemic under control. So if he's serious about inflation, if he's serious about the pandemic, if he's serious about child poverty, then we need to advance the Build Back Better Act so that we can, in fact, build back better. This is 85% of the president's agenda, which has still been left on the table. Jake, that was not a vote that I took lightly, 
But I had great concerns and I take no joy in those fears playing out in real time, that by decoupling these bills, that we would cede all of our leverage. And that had everything to do with my credible concerns based on lived experience Mm -hmm. with Senator Manchin changing the goalposts continually. So I thought this was so effective because this... This is kind of what I was hoping or expecting from Sanders that I think Ayanna Presley did really well here. It's like, this is about Joe Manchin. This is about Joe Manchin completely gutting this. This is about Joe Manchin failing the president. This is Joe Manchin just saying, like, I'm not going to work on the president's agenda. And then making it clear that their hesitation around separating those two bills were completely founded. Yeah, I thought the way she she phrased that was very... Very well said, like lived experience with Manchin moving the goalposts. And here he's he's done it again. Like, obviously, I mean, he's basically said the game is over. Yeah. And then soon after this clip, Ayanna Presley, Congresswoman Presley mentions how hard it's going to be to motivate voters in the midterm elections. So Senator Sanders uh, said uh, just a few minutes ago um, that this would create a, a stark difference in the 2022 midterms, where Democrats are on one side pushing for lower prescription drug prices, uh, child care, et cetera, the things that are in the Build Back Better and Republicans opposing it. But I wonder if you think it might actually have the opposite effect of suppressing and depressing progressive voters, younger voters, voters counting on some of the things in the Build Back Better Act and actually causing them to be disillusioned, disappointed and not turn out to vote uh, in 2022, even more that Democrats normally do not turn out to vote in the midterms. Jake, it was a a multi-generational, multi-racial movement of the most marginalized, black, brown, AAPI, indigenous, LGBTQ, disabled, who made this Democratic majority possible, and many of them issues-based activists, championing the need for police reform, to dismantle mass incarceration, to combat the climate crisis, to actualize Mm -hmm. racial justice, to cancel student debt. Um, It is incumbent upon us to do everything possible to meet the needs of that most marginalized movement, which made this majority possible. We run the risk of risking the majority, not by going big, but by playing small. So, of course, I have concerns about us not keeping our promises. I'm just impressed with her being able to name all those groups and talk about those issues in such a short period of time. Just as an answer, <laughs> it is it is pretty impressive as just like, I'm going to name these groups, name the issues that concern them, and explain how this is a problem. I feel like sometimes you you hear these questions and they're just like, this is going to motivate us to work even harder and we're going to come strong. And it's just like, it's so based on like hollow optimism, you know? And I like really respect Presley's answer here of like, yeah, it's going to be a lot harder to bring out these people who were expecting something big, who were expecting impact in their lives. And we're saying we can't do that. So did anyone talk about what the next steps are here for those who would want to pass Build Back Better? Well, you know, no one of the actual elected officials said it was dead, dead. Like no one is willing to say no one was willing to say that today. And so I think there's still like an expectation or a hope that Joe Manchin's flip before he'll flip again back Which in their is direction. Basically what the White House said in their statement exactly. that they released. Yeah. So 
there's that and then in terms of political pundits everyone's like well could it be broken up could it be in smaller pieces and so i think it's still to be determined like what the next iteration of this bill or what the next iteration of negotiation even will look like well we'll be watching that and seeing if or when there is any movement in that direction absolutely brendan what did you note today from i think it was face the nation you mentioned Yeah, so Face the Nation decided to tackle an extremely, extremely important topic, and this is the 100,000 deaths from not COVID, but overdoses that took place in 2021. This is the highest number ever. It is unbelievable to see, recognizing that in two years, We've seen 800,000 deaths from COVID-19, and in just one year, we have seen 100,000 deaths from overdoses. And if you look at the statistics, that number has just climbed and climbed and climbed over the past, you know, five, six years. It just keeps going up and up and up and up and up. And Face the Nation decided, look, it is worthwhile to do something, to do a story on this topic now. I do want to note that the Biden administration released two executive orders over the last few weeks on this topic, literally some two of them just like days ago. So they are kind of like taking their cues from what the administration is doing and not necessarily just saying, oh, this is an important issue. We're going to focus on it. They are taking their cues from the administration, but at least they are covering it. And today on Face the Nation, Margaret Brennan spoke with Ann Milgram. She is the administrator of the Drug Enforcement Agency. Now, instantly, I kind of went, ooh, is that really the best way to go about talking about this topic? We're going to talk about enforcement and not talk about caring for people who are in the throes of these overdose deaths or these addictions. We're going to immediately jump to enforcement. But the conversation did touch on a lot of this issue and enforcement is one important facet of the topic. So here is a bit of that interview and how it got started. I felt like Ann Milgram framed it well at the beginning of this. And I do want to note that this is a pre-recorded interview. It was obviously pre-recorded, and Margaret Brennan and the team at Face the Nation were picking out what they felt were the most important points of a much larger conversation. Why is it so hard to cut off the flow of fentanyl, which is the drug that seems to be fueling these overdoses? Fentanyl is a different drug threat than we've seen before. It's synthetic, meaning that it's man-made, it's made of chemicals. Right now, those chemicals are largely sourced from China. They're going to the Mexican criminal drug cartels that are then mass producing, often at an industrial scale, fentanyl. Fentanyl, tiny, tiny amounts can be deadly. Are people seeking it out as a drug or is it just something that they're surprised is mixed in to the drugs they're seeking? The cartels are mass producing these pills in Mexico mostly, and they're making them look like they're real oxycodone, like they're real hydrocodone, Percocet, Adderall, and then they're bringing them, flooding them into the United States and falsely advertise them, marketing them as though they were real pharmaceuticals. So you have a teen on Snapchat, an older American who's looking for a pain medicine that they might be able to get cheaper online, and they're finding these pills. The Americans believe that they're getting the actual pharmaceutical 
pill, they're not. What they're getting is fentanyl. And that is why we're seeing 100,000 overdose deaths this year. 64,000 of those are attributed to synthetic opioids like fentanyl. So what a great explanation and overview of where this is coming from and a kind of preview to what can be done about it. It's just unbelievable that 64% of these overdose deaths are from fentanyl. That's nearly double the number of deaths, 64,000, of what it was last year, almost double. And there was big news that came out within the last few weeks that fentanyl is now the leading cause of death for Americans 18 to 45, more than COVID-19, more than gun violence, more than accidents, which typically is the leading cause of deaths for people that age, because people that age don't usually have as many medical problems. They are younger people. But fentanyl is now killing them in record, record numbers. Now, you heard there Anne Milgram talk about social media, and I felt like Margaret Brennan did a great job asking about the role of social media in this story, because I feel like when you read, oh, these are overdose deaths, there's an expectation that these are deaths of people who are, you know, they're just taking too much. You know, they, they, they maybe have a problem with, uh, with drugs and they decide to or they accidentally take too many drugs. That's, I feel like what we, the kind of like story that people tell about overdoses that we have for like decades is that, oh, it's an overdose because somebody made a mistake and they took too much or they just, you know, were high and decided and forgot that they took too much or they just wanted too much. But the story that Milgram's telling here is no, these are accidents. Like people don't take too much on purpose, but this fentanyl is so dangerous that it is masquerading as something else and people don't mean to take so much. And that's a different story, right? That's a different story that needs to get out there about how these deaths are taking place. And part of it is being fueled by social media. The social media companies, you have said, are very much a conduit, TikTok, Snapchat. Yes. How are people seeking out these drugs intentionally on these social media platforms? And what are you doing to get the companies to crack down? Drug traffickers are harnessing social media because it is accessible. They're able to access millions of Americans and it is anonymous. And they're able to sell these fake pills and to lie on those social media sites about that. So we know every single day across America that drugs are being sold on these social media sites, Snapchat, TikTok, Facebook. When you go on your smartphone, wherever you are, those traffickers are there too. And the minute you open up one of those social media apps, they're there and they're waiting. They want to make it one click to get drugs into people's hands. We know what's happening and so do the social media companies. In our takedown, 76 of our cases are directly linked to social media websites where there is extensive narcotics trafficking happening. So you're building a case against the social media companies? We've built a case against, the at this moment, the criminal drug networks. And we've drawn the line between the Mexican criminal cartels that are mass producing illicit fentanyl and making these fake pills and pouring it into the United States. What we're doing is investigating. We want to understand everything about how this is happening. And of course, the social media companies need to do more. So once again, social media is at the center of another health crisis. And I really appreciated Margaret Brennan saying like, oh, so the assumption is then you're building a case against these social media sites to do more on this topic. And 
The answer is uh, no, not really. That's not what we're doing. I think what's interesting about this conversation is, like you mentioned, Brendan, making drug abuse and drug addiction a criminal narrative is kind of been like the default of like American narration of, of drug policy. And lately there's been kind of this push to see it more as, you know, a patient issue and an addiction issue. And that's necessary too. And like this story kind of falls in the middle, right? It like, yeah. it falls in the middle, like the drugs are different. And so people are more vulnerable. The drugs are more dangerous. And so it, it's not like, like a little bit of carelessness or a little bit of exploration can be deadly yes. in someone's life. Right, right. right? And so it, it's it's trying to like essentially understand like the market of drugs now so that people understand how much more dangerous it is. Right. I mean, you think back to the education we had when we were in school, which was, you know, this is your brain on brain. This is your brain on drugs. The narrative that they were trying to teach students was drugs mess up your brain and make you do dangerous things. Not the minute you take a drug, you're dead, you know, which is what this is, right? It's such a different storyline. And that's where I found this conversation so interesting, because it's trying to correct people's old assumptions Mm -hmm. on what the drug crisis is really about. And this is also a correction of the old explanation of, oh, this is about OxyContin, this is about prescription drugs, this is about doctors over-prescribing and Purdue Pharma and that whole storyline. It's not that anymore, right? This is a very different storyline as well. And just as People need to realize that they're not called food stamps anymore. People need to correct their understanding of this crisis so we can get a real handle on it. And social media as a driver of it is an important part of that. And I Mm want to highlight, you know, CBS News themselves produced a report talking about social media's role in this just a few weeks ago. And I wanted to highlight a little bit of that because I think they did a good job. Take a listen to this clip. This is something that was on CBS Evening News just two weeks ago on November 30th. CBS News asked Miles to create two fake profiles across Instagram, Snapchat, and TikTok, claiming they were 18 but publicly identifying as high school students. One was actively searching for drugs. I just messaged, hey, do you have Xanax? And within just 48 hours, found an apparent dealer. The second account used different hashtags like depression, sad, anxiety. While all three platforms provided some mental health resources, posts about marijuana and cigarettes also appeared on Instagram. By the third day on Instagram, we were fully immersed into drug culture. Who bears the responsibility? It's the tech companies. Since they aren't liable, they're not creating the guardrails needed to keep our kids safe. Guardrails that McIntosh says need to start at home. It was my kid, and it's going to happen to someone else's kid. If you can approach your kid in this kind of like soul way, like let's have an honest conversation about why, how, and what we need to do as a family to keep you safe. And I do want to note that uh, the voice you heard there was reporter Tom Hansen. And those two accounts were created by Kathleen Miles, who works for the Center on Illicit Networks and Transnational Organized Crime. After that report, CBS News reached out and got 
statements from Snapchat and Meta, which is the company formerly known as Facebook that owns Instagram, the Instagram spokesperson said, as a result of the technology we've developed to find and remove this content proactively, we now remove over 96% of it before people report it, right? Like, oh, we've got, you know, all this great technology to weed out these things and make sure that this isn't happening on our platform. But if you actually watch the segment, these accounts are full of pictures of pills and bottles that say the names of of painkillers and drugs. And it's like, are you kidding me? Like, my iPhone will pick out pictures of dogs and puppies instantly with machine learning. You're telling me these companies can't pick out pictures of pills and flag it and say, um, maybe before this is uploaded to our servers, we should have someone take a look and make sure you're not selling drugs, right? Like, give me a freaking break. You're telling me that your technology is is so advanced, and yet here's an example right now of pictures of pills. Brendan, I feel like there needs to be like a what the wire remake, but of like drug distribution on social media. <laughs> oh, absolutely, absolutely. So good for Margaret Brennan touching on the social media issue. Hopefully, it continues to be a major theme of this conversation. But Brennan also asked like okay, so what are you actually doing about this? What is the DEA engaged in if you're not going after social media? Why isn't interdiction working? It is working in one sense, which is that we've taken off 20 million fake pills this year. We estimate at the DEA lab that four in 10 of those pills are potentially deadly. We've taken off 15,000 pounds of fentanyl this year. That is enough potentially lethal doses to kill every single American. We're focused on tracking those overdose deaths and working back to understand the full network from Mexico to Main Street that is causing harm and is killing Americans. It's not enough for us to do one drug trafficker here and there. Mm -hmm. We have to be targeted at the entire network so that we can take them down. President Biden signed two executive orders to fight drug trafficking, and it allowed for a crackdown on fentanyl producers, particularly in China. What tools does this give you now? I mean, how do you get Beijing to hand over the bad guys? There are hundreds of thousands of unregulated chemical companies in China that are sending these drugs, these precursor chemicals that can be made into fentanyl. Those chemical companies are advertising. You can use this to make fentanyl. So we know what they're doing. China knows what they're doing. They need to do more. What the president's executive order does is it gives us new tools, particularly around illicit finance. One of the things that drives drug trafficking worldwide is money laundering, taking those profits and laundering them through different means. We see a lot of that illicit finance happening both in China and in Mexico. The other EO by the president set up a, um, an organization across government focused on transnational organized crime. That is narcotics trafficking. So the, probably one of the most eye-opening things I just heard there was Anne Milgram saying they have removed enough fentanyl from the market to kill every single American. And this is where I feel like there were some missing questions in this conversation. And one of them was not just about what the Biden administration is doing about it, but what the Biden administration isn't doing about it. And there are things that aren't being done that probably should be done and that the president could be doing. Some of these statistics that have been making headlines have been actually synthesized and put together 
by an organization called Families Against Fentanyl. And back in July of this year, they sent an, uh, an open letter to Joe Biden signed by the former director of the CIA, the former deputy national security advisor, the former secretary of Homeland Security, calling for the Biden administration to declare fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction. And in this letter, they note that an amount of fentanyl that is equal to the mass of a single packet of sweetener, you know, like the sweetener you have on the table in that little packet when you're at the restaurant, fentanyl in that size can kill 500 people. Oh my God, that's horrible. Yes. And that a similar amount of car fentanyl, which is kind of like a more potent variety that's used in manufacturing, is enough to kill 50,000 people. Like, if this is not a weapon of mass destruction, that's what terrifying. is? terrifying. Right? Truly terrifying. Like, it is, it is terrifying, and it should be indicated as such. Like, these overdoses, you look at what we did after 9-11, which killed way, way fewer people than this is killing every single year. How are we not treating this as a national security threat? Truly. And that's what they're calling on the Biden administration to doing. And they, it, it, it hasn't really happened here. So I would have liked to seen questions about that. And really the question that I felt was missing in this conversation was this one. 800,000 Americans have died from COVID-19 over two years. We've spent billions upon billions, probably reaching a trillion dollars, fighting COVID-19 and energy and time fighting COVID-19. Drug overdoses have killed 100,000 Americans just this year, but we're not spending a proportionally similar amount of time and energy on reducing those deaths, right? So why is that? And what are we going to do to increase the time and energy and money that we're spending to stop these overdose deaths? It's a multifaceted problem. What is the multifaceted solution to dealing with it? And again, kind of expanding our interpretation of this problem, whether your assumptions are old school and thinking that it's more criminal or your assumptions are more kind of recent and that this is kind of like a patient-centric concern, you know, a multifaceted problem that requires multifaceted solutions forces everyone to kind of like reconsider what they think the solution should be right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. And like, it doesn't have to just be about sanctioning companies in China and working with Mexico. There was a glimmer of some of the things that could make a huge impact in this interview itself. And some of those are about communication. So what would you tell parents who are listening at home, terrified at what you're describing? What can they actually do? Well, they need to sit and talk with their kids. The research is clear that when parents talk to children, drug use goes down in half. And we know that there are kids who don't understand these risks. We know that there are older Americans as well. This is a new threat. So the, people shouldn't be expected to know it. We need to help people understand one pill can kill. The only medicine that they should take is what's prescribed to them mm -hmm. personally and filled at a local pharmacy. This is incredible information that when parents sit down and talk to their children, drug use goes down in half. Imagine the impact if every parent did that. Why isn't there a national campaign 
to communicate this to parents and communicate this risk. It should be all over the place that this is a new risk and this is that, that one, as she says, one pill can kill. That seems pretty clear to me. Why doesn't everyone know that a packet of this stuff can kill 50 people? I mean, it's unbelievable that we don't have this information out there and that it's not reshaping the conversation on this topic. Another important point is that some of these overdoses, there is a, an antidote to it, commonly called Narcan or Naloxone, and it's an antidote for opioid overdose that is now sold over the counter in almost every state. And if used immediately, it can prevent a death from an overdose. This is what firefighters are having to administer and paramedics administer most of their time. Like they spend most of their time administering this and not fighting fires these days. But it's something that people can have in their homes right now to potentially save lives. That's something that people should know about and should probably be stocking up on and like practicing and understanding in their communities. That's another thing that can happen. Again, multifaceted approaches to the problem and a multifaceted conversation that should be happening all across the Sunday shows and all across the media. But just huge props to Face the Nation for starting the conversation and having such a a data-packed and rich conversation today about it. Another example of the Face the Nation team seeing a huge story brewing and trying to put a lens on it talking to the experts who are part of that work before everyone else knows about it. Absolutely. All right, Naomi. Well, that takes us to our dialogue challenge today. How about this? If you have kids of that age, talk to them about this right now. You know, like tell them. Just talk to your kids about anything, honestly. Like, I mean, we haven't been parents that long, but catch us in 15 years. Polylog will be like, you know, parenting and dialogue or something just like talk to your like talk to your people in your life about what you're learning and what might not be on their radar right just a little humility and curiosity or family and friends who have kids who might not know about this that too just talk to your people yeah well if you would like to talk to us we could be your people too <laughs> you can email us at podcast at polylog.com you can find me on twitter at soto naomi underscore you can find me at Title, and you can find the show at polylogcast thanks everyone and we'll talk with you next week and by the way merry christmas which happens between now and our next broadcast yeah merry christmas if that's your holiday you like celebrating happy saturday if it's not you know Hope you have a great week. Bye. Bye.